Well, immediately prior to my freshman year of college, I took part in an adventure course where me and a dozen or so other guys uh, for two weeks were backpacking and hiking and canoeing in the upper peninsula of Michigan. And we canoed the Ontonagon River and like actually canoed out onto Lake Superior. Um, and the highlight of that trip was a solo experience for, where for 24 hours you'd be alone with just a tarp, your canteen, and a Bible. I've never forgotten that time. As a kid who grew up in Kansas, who had not seen the ocean at that point, Lake Superior was my first ocean. Okay, it's like Lake Michigan. It's big enough to have that impact on you, and we were far enough from civilization that you really felt that. And I remember that for, the, for about those 24 hours, a lot of those hours, I was just excited and giddy like a little kid. Kind of this mixture of adventure and a little bit of trepidation. You know, it's that feeling you get as you're climbing up the roller coaster, this like exhilaration, but uh, suddenly you realize how small you are. And I remember that night hearing the, the rhythmic crash of the waters on my little patch of shoreline. I was brought to a real place of stillness. And it was dark, it was so dark. And the stars were so bright and big and right there. And I felt really alone. But I also felt special. In fact, I can tell you it's one of the first times I can look back and say, I knew I spent time in the presence of the Lord. And Psalm 8 has helped me understand why that time was so sacred. It was a time where I really felt like I connected with the glory of God. Glory is a tough word for me. I don't know about you, but glory is a word that's hard for me. I don't really know what it means. For me, it's a Bible word, right, which means it's in scriptures a lot, but I don't hear it in my daily life much. I don't use it much. In fact, when I have friends that do use it, like, we had a glorious meeting together, <laughs> or what a glorious morning. I often am just like, I don't know what to say. It's a little awkward for me. Are you just trying to sound spiritual again? So glory is that way for me. But if you, depending on the translation you read, glory appears three to 500 times in the scriptures. So anytime I'm stuck in a word, I go back to the dictionary. So here are some definitions of glory. Very great praise, honor, renown, something that is a source of honor, fame, or admiration, a distinguished ornament or object of pride. Here are my favorites. Adoring praise or worshipful thanksgiving. And the one I really like, resplendent beauty or magnificence. No one uses resplendent either. <laughs> now we don't know the full backstory of Psalm 8, but the poetry suggests the author, and it's possibly David, is out at night and he's awake and he's contemplating things and he's overcome by what he sees in the sky. He's caught up in the beauty and the wonder around him and he's prompted to compose this beautiful prayer. And it's a prayer full of meaning and insight, even prophecy, but also gives him inspiration to live his life more fully. This is a psalm that orients us, okay? It oriented this, this, uh, this poet. He receives for himself new insight about his station in life through this prayer. And what I love about the psalm is that it starts outdoors where I lived most of my childhood. It's, and it's creation itself that has provoked the psalmist to prayer and provoked him to praise. 
Read with me. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Now, this may be hard for us. Most of us aren't stargazers, right? I can find the Big Dipper. But even so, like in Chicago, we, we light the night sky for safety and for work, and it actually really blinds us. We actually can't take in the splendor of the night sky very well. My, my college is in the suburbs of, of Chicago, and their colors are blue and orange. That's their team colors. And I remember calling my dad and saying, I know why their colors are blue. The sky's blue at night, and, or blue during the day, and it's orange at night. <laughs> so we don't, we don't necessarily get to bask in the stars much. But we have a few tools that David didn't have. For instance, the Hubble telescope. Let me just give you an idea of the glory here. <laughs> Do you know that we think that there's probably anywhere from 100 to 400 billion stars in our galaxy? And we know that our galaxy is probably one of around 1,300 galaxies in our cluster of galaxies. And it just expands from there. OK, that's a sense of glory. What if we bring it a little bit closer to home, literally? Down to Earth. Oceans, mountains, sequoias. Have anybody been next to a, red, a redwood tree? Lake Michigan. That's as close as you can get, probably. I call these big creation. Big Earth, big water, big sky. And they're giant signposts that point to an almighty creator. And you know, this is a creator God whose greatness is so great and so big, it's unavoidable. Sometimes it's overwhelming. It's like you're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, or when you're flying in an airplane and you look down, and you suddenly realize how small you are. And we do this, don't we? Whatever we're taking it in, we flip it around and make it about us. I mean, here's this poet who's outside appreciating beauty, and all of a sudden, it's about me. What about me? We have a tendency to, to think the world or the universe revolves around us. I know I do. You can ask my wife. She'll verify. I flip things about me all the time, whether in prayer, in church, in meetings, conversations. I'm considering my own plight, my own significance. What's, how does this impact me? What's, what's this mean for me? What's my frame of reference? Turns out I'm in good company because the psalmist has this honest moment as well. Verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? When you take in the glory of the universe, or better yet, when you're getting a glimpse of God's glory through the universe, it's reasonable to feel a bit undone. This question of what is man, it's echoes through humanity, through the history of man. It's echoed in the scriptures. Let me give you a few answers that some of the Old Testament references are. Job says, man's a maggot. David in Psalm 22 says, I'm a worm and not a man. In Romans, Paul says, compared to God, all men are liars. It's not a great epitaph. Not really the most magnanimous view of ourselves. But we all do this. We look around the world, the universe, and we see giants, giant problems, giant issues, giant obstacles, or maybe just giants. And we despair. We get stuck in our weakness, our helplessness, brokenness, our struggle to pay our bills, my fear of failure, broken relationships. And we're not good enough. We're not gifted enough. We're not big enough. We're not strong enough to overcome this. And by the way, the world's falling apart anyway. 
God seems very far away. And if we're honest, we're wondering if God's glory is maybe like outer space, cold, distant, impersonal, maybe indifferent. And maybe God's glory is best left to the textbooks like space or, or to those eccentrics that use glory in their everyday language or are out of touch with uh, the pain and plight of small little of us. Who knows my pain? Who cares for me? Who's looking out for me? Oh, and by the way, where was God when fill in the blank? Maybe that's why glory is such an awkward word. Feels out of touch with Monday morning. Feels out of touch with our daily routine. If you're feeling small, maybe, like I do, I got good news for you. God loves small. He loves what the world thinks is worthless and insignificant. Look at verse 2. Out of the mouths of babes and infants or sucklings, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy of the avenger. It's possible, if the writer is David, that this could make you think of the story of David and Goliath. Okay? It's a great story. This is a story where God ordains a teenager to go defeat a seasoned warrior, a seasoned warrior who's so big and so brutish he intimidates armies. But the, image, the images are what's important here, okay? Babes and sucklings are poetic imagery that should make you think of dependence, helplessness, so much so you can't even really eat food. You will die without mama's milk. That's what that should make you think of. And this is how God works throughout history. God champions the weak and the lowly, and he actually brings them into his divine plan to have his way. Look at Isaiah 57. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Listen to Jesus. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Or in Matthew 11, when Jesus prays, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Jesus himself quotes Psalm 8. Did you know that? Matthew 21, he talks to the chief priests and scribes. So it's like, so it's like our Palm Sunday, right? The children of Jerusalem are waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this offends the religious rulers. And Jesus says, hey, pay attention to these children. They're, they're correct. We had our church retreat a month ago, and we had a time of testimony where anyone could um, stand up and, and share um, what God's been doing or teaching them or showing them, and Lorelai Radeke stood up. And I was so blessed. She's nine. And she said, I just want to testify that God has answered my prayer to see more animals. I was really struck by that. So I sat down with Lorelai, and she said I could share our conversation with you. And, uh, I mean, I grew up outdoors on a farm, love animals. And I said, Lorelai, what, what, what is it about seeing animals that made this so significant? What, what's, what do you experience? She's like, oh, when I see animals, I feel joy. I feel joy. I resonate with that. And, you know, when other people were seeing animals and she wasn't, you know what she did? She prayed. 
She told me she prayed for probably over a year. A couple weeks ago, I was driving home. Me and Nora, my four-year-old, some of you have experienced her. <laughs> and I was trying to be a good dad. I asked to talk about church. I said, hey, it's communion today. Yeah. Did you know Jesus loves you and me so much, Nora? That he died so that we can be with God again. Yeah. <laughs> All right, got to go further. That's like pushing. Nora, do you love Jesus? Yeah, do you? <laughs> yes, I do. Without missing a beat, she says, well, when I grow up, I'm going to die for Jesus. My throat squeezed up. Well, that escalated quickly. <laughs> Nora's logic was sound. Jesus died for me. I should be willing to die for him. It's a four-year-old. Offhand comment. Sobering. Out of the mouths of babes. But these verses don't just apply to young humans that make interesting comments. They're for us too, us adults. Listen to this. This is about Peter and John, right? Does it get any better than Peter and John? Acts 4. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. 1 Corinthians, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. strong. Friends, brothers and sisters, look, Christianity is not about education or rank. It's not about beauty or achievement. It is about dependence on God. And we often don't see our dependence on God until we can see how big he is and how small we are. Okay, okay, we get it. I'm small and puny, weak, sometimes foolish. We don't need to be reminded, right? The world reminds us every day. We wake up to our giants, bills, work, family, illness, sin habits, emotional pain that's not going away. Please don't emphasize that I'm a helpless baby. But read on in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him, or visit him, is the translation. And Charles Spurgeon latches on to the word visit here in his commentary, and I really like it. And he says this word shows up elsewhere in Old Testament, and I'll take his word for it because I don't understand Hebrew. Genesis 21, the Lord visited Sarah, as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. Exodus 4, and then Aaron and Moses. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and he'd seen their affliction, they bowed their heads in worship. Psalm 65, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. These are all moments when the Holy One, Yahweh, came near. But these were aberrations to the norm, right? That's why they wrote about them. The gap between God and his people was there. The gap between you and God, the gap between me and God is there. It's been there since Eden. Eden, the place where, where man and God commune, they walk together. And now we're left with visitations, visiting hours, if you will, rather than getting to live with that who you love. We're still on the side of the Grand Canyon. We might be able to see or sense God's on the other side, and there's this great and glorious chasm. But here we are, small, helpless to cross it. I've got more good news. Because heaven came down 
Jesus, the Son of God, the Word of God through whom all the universe was created, that was brought into existence through him, he stooped lower than low and brought the glory of God down here to earth. Not only did he become a poor, naked, helpless suckling himself, born uh, in the middle of a desert outside around filthy animals, he went on to live an adult life where he was homeless, had no possessions, was mocked, scorned, shamed, and even beaten, and then killed like an animal. In fact, we wouldn't tolerate an animal being killed in the manner in which Jesus died today. Philippians states it well, that he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus went to the very basement of the universe. You will never have it worse than Christ had it. You will never be as alone or as forgotten as Jesus was. J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop, I think the first bishop in Liverpool, wrote this in the 1800s. There is a friend ever waiting to help us, a friend who pitied the poor and sick and sorrowful when he was upon earth, a friend who knows the heart of man, a friend who can weep with the weepers, for he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief a friend who was able to help us, for there never was earthly pain he could not cure. That friend is Jesus Christ. Jesus can enter into everything you are facing because of the glory of the cross. Does anyone still listen to Fernando Otega? I love him. I can't let go of him. He has a, has a song called uh, Jesus, King of Angels, and he has this phrase, the universe is vast beyond the stars. You are mindful when the sparrow falls. You are mindful of the anxious thoughts that find me, surround me, and bind me. Hebrews 2, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus said he came to glorify the Father. The work Jesus did, dying a sinless death in faith and resurrected by, the, by God the Father, gives you and I direct access to the glory of God now. No longer is God far off, speaking only through a select few or simply displaying his glory through bigness. No longer are we left with just visiting hours. Now he's being poured out on all flesh, and you can see the glory of God in every corner of your life. Let's pick up at verse 5. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Jesus has forever united himself with humanity. He's fully God, he's fully man. And he has glorified the Father, and now we share in that inheritance. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of the light with all power according to his glorious might. 
why does the psalmist take us back to creation, to the created order? I think it's because when we are rightly oriented, we find ourselves and we see our, our lowliness as God sees it. When we're taken up into the life of Christ, we can appropriately move to participate in the world as God intended us. The universe does not revolve around me, doesn't revolve around you, but God. And when we get that, when we, find, we find that we do belong. And when we follow Christ, we find that our lives do have a purpose. And what's more, it's now that our lives also glorify God. And then we become the signpost. Right? We become the signpost that point not just to an awesome, mighty creator, but to a loving creator. I love this quote from an Anglican priest named Phillips Brooks, who lived in Boston, again in the 1800s, must have been a good time. The true way to be humble is not to stoop until you are smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. What the real smallness of your greatness is. I love that. You're small. I'm small. God made us that way. And you have a greatness which is bestowed upon you by a loving Savior who so valued you, he gave up his glory in heaven and forever entered into creation. I'm reminded of the hymn, and heaven came down and glory filled my soul. How profound, how true. So, do we just walk around like little glowing stars, snug and smug in our found salvation? Well, with great glory comes great responsibility. We're called back to our duty, our unique role in creation, right? We were meant to be God's vice regents, his agents on earth, creating and promoting health and order in this world. And now we've been empowered with the very glory of God to do it. Now, most of us are not going to become farmers or ranchers or marine biologists where we directly rule over animals day in and day out. Though Lorelai did tell me that because uh, the horse is her favorite animal, she might grow up to be a farmer. So you might need a bigger rooftop garden. But what the psalmist is saying is that we all have a role to play in creating and participating in our families, our church, our community, our society, the world, participating in it. Tim Keller says it very well, of course, in his book, Every Good Endeavor. Our work should be seen as a vehicle for God's loving provision for the world. So whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Our souls need to engage the glory of God. We need it. And that's my hope for you today. May I encourage you to practice the discipline, the discipline of worship, to find ways to be in awe of God. Look what happened for the poet as he began to experience God's glory. His life made sense. He got a little bit of clarity about reality around him. This wasn't a blindness or an indifference to the plight of, of humanity but an inspiration to live in resplendent beauty. Doesn't that sound great? To live in resplendent beauty? If you're struggling with that, remember Jesus lived in and redeemed your station in life. And now, 
He's transformed it into the most glorious office in the created order. You need to know God's glory because it'll empower you to love your neighbor, love your enemy, suffer with those that are suffering, to serve the least, seek the lost, and perhaps, as my four-year-old reminded me, even be willing to lay down your life in Jesus' name. You want your life to glorify God? Go get next to big earth, big water. Let it move you to worship the creator, your creator. Worship God for who he is. Worship Christ for what he did for you. And give thanks for what he has for you to come. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen.